Having preached most Sundays of the past dozen years, today remarkably marks a preaching first. I'm 95% in this, 95% sure this is the first time I've ever preached on Leviticus. The riveting, inspiring book of Leviticus. I jest, of course, about the riveting, inspiring bit. My earliest experience of the book of Leviticus is that it was boredom-inducing, and therefore the thwarter of many a read-through-the-Bible endeavor. I was a relatively pious young person and tried to read through my Bible many times, and what this means practically is that I read Genesis and Exodus many times. I'm not sure I ever successfully powered through Leviticus, and so my pious efforts would die somewhere therein. And my pious effort wasn't the only thing dying in Leviticus. After all, the first bull slaughter appears only five verses in. Not chapters, verses. And by the sixth verse, we hear details about how the bull shall be flayed and cut up into its parts. Two verses later include specific instructions for the decapitated head, and the entrails appear in verse 9. So those first nine verses aren't exactly boring. The boring stuff comes later, but neither are they particularly appetizing. I confess that I experienced a bit of deja vu this week when I attempted to read the two-and-a-half-page introduction to Leviticus in my HarperCollins study Bible, total snooze fest. It was only two and a half pages, and I had some skin in the game. A sermon needed to be written, and I totally zoned out, and I'm also a bit of a Bible geek. I couldn't get through the two and a half pages. So, my first experience of Leviticus, boring, and an insurmountable hurdle to my would-be piety, plus a little gory. As I got a bit older and the debates about homosexuality began to rage in the church, I came to know Leviticus as home to a couple of the clobber texts used by many to claim homosexuality not only as sin, but also an abomination. And not long thereafter, I also came to know Leviticus as home to its own clever rebuttal. Because if homosexuality was an abomination based on Leviticus, then so were all the cotton polyester blends hanging in all of our closets. So were the mixed crop fields I grew up surrounded by in northern Indiana. And so were the shrimps on my shrimp, shrimp, and more shrimp plate at Red Lobster. A birthday favorite of mine. In fact, the Leviticus as clever rebuttal took a turn for the viral when radio personality Dr. Laura Schlesinger stated publicly that speaking as an observant Orthodox Jew, homosexuality was an abomination according to Leviticus 18.22 and could not be condoned under any circumstance. And someone wrote a cheeky open letter to Dr. Laura thanking her for her biblical insight and asking her opinion on how to abide by other parts of Leviticus in contemporary life. And Thelma reminded me of this very humorous letter this past week. I'm going to resist the temptation to read it to you, but one excerpt I think is particularly relevant given our pastoral team here at SMC. Leviticus 25.44 states that I may indeed possess slaves, the author writes, both male and female, provided they are purchased from neighboring nations. A friend of mine claims that this applies to Mexicans, but not Canadians. Can you clarify? 
Why can't I own Canadians? Uh, I promise I'm not trying to deal with our budget situation here at SMC, but man, if we could own a few of our pastors. First, Leviticus was boring and blocked my attempts at piety. Second, Leviticus was home to some clobber texts wielded against my LGBTQ kin. And next, Leviticus was home to its own clever rebuttal for such would-be clobbering. But honestly, it's never been that much more than that to me. I can't recall the last time I tried to read it through. I didn't read it through this past week. And I don't think I've ever turned to it for comfort or edification or inspiration. So that seems to make Leviticus a very unlikely companion for our season of Jubilee discernment regarding our wealth, our wealth of property and staff and money. Except except that the biblical Jubilee vision is first and most comprehensively captured by Leviticus. And while it gets rather detailed in these parts of Leviticus, I actually don't find it boring at all at least not anymore. Maybe it's even on the way to riveting and inspiring. Maybe. In Adult Forum last week, we reflected on what assumptions we bring, impressions that we bring to biblical jubilee, and one person in my triad shared with our little small group and then with the larger group that it's an idea that we humans have a long history of ignoring. Indeed, there's a very long and not-so-esteemed tradition of ignoring biblical jubilee as described in Leviticus until, it can be argued, Jesus came along. And Amy began with some very thoughtful reflections in her sermon last week about Jesus and jubilee, and we're going to pick up that theme again next week. But for now, we're going to dive into and dig into this unlikely companion, Leviticus. Amy, again, succinctly and helpfully described for us the 50-year cycle detailed in Leviticus. Every seven days is a Sabbath day of rest. Every seven years is a Sabbath year of complete rest, we heard in Leviticus this morning, allowing the fields to lie fallow. And every seven cycles of seven years on the 50th year is Jubilee. And in the Jubilee year, slaves were to be freed. All slaves, no exceptions. Debts were to be forgiven. All debts, no exceptions. And each person was to return to their original land. Each person, all land, redistributed, no exceptions. A fresh The 50th year was to be hallowed as a year of liberty and liberation for all people, a year of liberty and liberation for the land itself, a year of refreshment for all people and all creatures and the whole land. And the voice of God in Leviticus proclaims that the jubilee shall be holy to you. And indeed, if this kind of redistribution was happening and all had enough, holy it would be indeed. This vision of biblical jubilee that's detailed in Leviticus is rooted in the story of the Exodus. As liberated Hebrew slaves wandered in the wilderness, God set sustenance in the form of manna. And as we all know, I read this Exodus a lot. I know this story. 
God sends sustenance in the form of manna, commanding them to gather only what they would need each day, urging them to trust that today's manna would be enough for today and tomorrow's manna would be enough for tomorrow. Give us this day our daily bread, Jesus many years later taught his disciples to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. In Leviticus, God reminds the Hebrew people over and over again, you heard it from Thelma and Mary in particular, I am Hashem, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You were slaves. I am the Hashem, your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt over and over again. And there's no way to understand Jubilee then without understanding its roots in the Exodus and the character of God revealed in the story of the Exodus. In that story, God is a God of liberation, a God of freedom from slavery. God is a God of returning home or home bringing, which is the literal meaning of the word jubilee. And God is a God of manna, a God of enough, a God of sustenance, a God who proclaims and provides sufficiency, instructing the people not to accumulate or to store up for the future. Jubilee is a celebration of an exodus God who liberates a manna people who trusts that each day will provide enough and a redeemed land (laughs) that gets plenty of rest. Jubilee is a very good idea that we humans have a long history of ignoring. Indeed, scholars mostly agree that Jubilee, on a large scale at least, was probably never fully practiced. Why not? If God commanded it, well, it's totally impractical. And if Jubilee was never fully realized in its original context, then it's going to be exponentially more impractical to imagine realizing it now in our context, given the global population boom and long and complex migration patterns. How do you even determine who belongs to which land originally at this point? I would, however, like to say a word on behalf of impracticality. We Mennonites have a long history with impracticalities. Very good and impractical ideas that have long histories of being ignored are sort of our bread and butter. Impracticalities are central to our uniquely Anabaptist Christological focus. And I'm talking, of course, here about the Sermon on the Mount and understanding nonviolence in all situations as the heart of the gospel of Jesus. What could be more impractical than loving your enemies? and praying for those who persecute you. Others have extolled the impracticalities, in this world at least, of turning the other cheek, of walking the other mile, of giving your cloak along with your coat, giving to everyone who begs from you and loving your enemies. But Mennonites over and over, broken record style, have insisted that these teachings of Jesus are decidedly this-worldly. Not just something to look forward to in some heaven light years away, but to be proclaimed and practiced and lived here and now. Now, I don't need to tell you that we haven't done this perfectly, because we haven't, and you know that. But our Anabaptist Mennonite insistence that the church is is called to be now what the world is called to be ultimately has given birth to some pretty amazing stuff like victim-offender reconciliation programs and Christian peacemaker teams waging a just peace in international conflict zones 
totally impractical in theory and breathtaking when incarnated, however falteringly and imperfectly. Yes, charges of impracticality should not frighten us off. That's who we are and that's what we do even in the face of naysayers. I was listening to some archived episodes of the Iconocast this week, which is a podcast produced by a collective of radical Jesus followers, many of whom identify as Anabaptist, exploring the way of Jesus in the empire. And in one of them, Ched Myers reflected poignantly about the need to build resiliency as followers of Jesus in the face of being called impractical and unrealistic. Perfect song choice, Amy, with the kids. We're going to follow Jesus. We're going to do some crazy things. Is that what it was? Act a little strange. Act a little strange. Act a little strange. And Ched talks about building resiliency in the face of that sort of criticism. Because if we're going to walk in the way of Jesus while surrounded by the way of empire, we're going to be called impractical and unrealistic. And if we're going to walk in the way of Jesus while we ourselves are possessed by the way of empire, and we are because it is so thick around us, then we're going to have to be resilient in the face of our own internal critics as well the internal critic that will seek to silence and to stop us from pursuing things that are seemingly impractical and unrealistic. On a sort of side note, though, I wonder if there's some connection here, which is why I decided to leave it in. As Amy and I were discussing the impracticalities of Mennonite Christology this week, she made the point that our lived theology has been incredibly practical and earthy and concrete For example, our cookbooks, starting with more with less. As farmer, writer, mother, veterinarian, former classmate of mine, and I think maybe relative of the Shank Millers, is this right, Abby Gasho Landis? Wrote in Paste magazine, and Debbie sent this to me months ago. Blessed are the peacemakers, my Mennonite upbringing still whispers to me, for they will grow large gardens preserve produce in glass jars, and dog-ear their more with less cookbooks. Food is patient. Food is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Love your neighbor with your casserole. (laughs) Even in this congregation, I know that several of you found your way to Mennonite community and faith through spicy split pea soup, pilgrim's bread, and savory rice loaf, or whatever some of your favorites are from the More With Less cookbook. I wonder if there's something to this combo of a supposedly impractical Christology, doing the impractical things that Jesus called for in the Sermon on the Mount, with a totally concrete and practical lived theology. Both are incarnational and earthy, and maybe that's the connection. But maybe someone else needs to take that and run with it. What is it? What is it about those two things that we hold these both? Regardless, like loving enemies and praying for persecutors, biblical jubilee is a very good, if impractical and unrealistic idea that we humans have a long history of ignoring. But we ignore biblical jubilee at our own peril. Hannah Notus read from Leviticus this morning a vision of the earth with Jubilee 
practices. The, yield shall, the, the land shall yield bounty. There will be peace. No one will make you afraid. God will dwell in our midst. It's a beautiful vision. Biblical Jubilee insists that proper ownership of anything, but notably land, must include concrete actions that protect and ultimately prosper the poor. Proper ownership must include concrete actions to care for the poor. Jubilee is a reversal of the mechanisms of wealth accumulation and marginalization. And Jubilee practice is to overcome the usual human tendencies toward exclusion. And the the result of these Jubilee practices lived is lovely, idyllic even. Hannah Haig then read from Leviticus, a vision of the earth with Jubilee practices ignored. There will be terror. Consumption will waste our eyes and cause life to pine away. Enemies will reap what we sow. We shall flee in fear, though no one pursues. Our pride and glory will be broken. Our sky like iron and our earth like copper. Our strength will be spent and our land barren. God's face seemingly set against us. While it sounds as though God is going to do some old-fashioned smiting and vengeance here, When I read this vision in Leviticus, when I heard it again this morning with Hannah reading those hard words, hard words that we don't often hear in worship, it doesn't sound prescriptive to me, like something God will do if we don't get our collective act together. To me, it just sounds descriptive. It just sounds descriptive of the world that we are actually living in. Though at first glance, it may sometimes seem this way, God doesn't smite and curse with a divine finger or wand or something like that. God doesn't need to. What is described in Leviticus is Hashem teaching the Hebrew people the natural consequences of living in obedience or disobedience to the Creator's ways. Natural consequences. And that footnote, my friends, goes to our own Wes Howard Brook. And come out my people. So even if never fully realized on the large scale, how has biblical jubilee, this good and impractical idea largely ignored, been lived in the life of Jesus and in the life of contemporary discipleship communities? There's going to be more on Jesus next week and one lived example this week. In another Iconocast episode, because I was on a roll with the podcast. Mark Van Steenwick, co-founder of the Mennonite Worker in Minneapolis, interviews Thomas Gokey, a professor at Syracuse University and part of Strike Debt, a nationwide movement of debt resistors that emerged out of Occupy Wall Street. Now, Rolling Jubilee is a strike debt program that buys debt for pennies on the dollar, because this is a thing in our world. Did you know this? That debt is bought and sold as a commodity, and people are making great profits on this. There's a whole market out there. Rolling Jubilee buys debt at pennies on the dollar, and instead of collecting the debt, Rolling Jubilee forgives it, abolishes it, 
As of today, they've raised just over $700,000 and abolished nearly $32 million of debt. That's awesome. Obviously, that's a drop in the bucket of our collective debt. But to those whose debts were included in that $32 million, that means the world. A fresh start, if ever I've seen one. It turns out that with a bit of cash, some will, and ingenuity, Jubilee isn't so wholly impractical or unrealistic as it at first seems. And that's one. There's thousands of small-scale Jubilee stories just like this one, which isn't really all that small-scale. $32 million. Thousands of these stories, these Jubilee stories, being lived and practiced the world over. And where Jubilee is lived, just like Leviticus states, this unlikely companion of ours, the land yields bounty, there is peace, people are made less afraid, and God dwells in our midst. So, friends, as we move into discernment about our relationship to our own resources, This is my blessing for us today. May we be blessed with Holy Spirit eyes to look at seemingly crazy, impractical, and unrealistic ideas and see possibility. May we be blessed with Holy Spirit ears to hear seemingly crazy, impractical, and unrealistic ideas and hear invitation. And may we be blessed with Holy Spirit hands to take seemingly crazy, impractical, and unrealistic ideas and craft Jubilee communities. May the Holy Spirit free us from fears of impracticality. May we be released and liberated by an exodus God to be a manna people of sufficiency and enough, living with joy what others would dismiss as unrealistic. May we be so crazy. Amen.